Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but not here. Oh, no, not here. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our inaugural Game of Thrones Season 8 mini-episode thing where, God, Emmett, what the fuck are we even going to talk about here? Well, you know, the books we spend so much time talking about were based on this little HBO show. Oh. The books were written by this this notorious hack, George R. R. Martin, who just uh, adopts things from television for fun. So we thought we'd go back to the source material and uh, do some episodes on Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, we both thought it would be fun to do this for you guys, uh, figuring that there'd be a lot of interest here. And oh my gosh, there was so much interest. We had no idea when we even started this. Uh, season 8, Game of Thrones is out. That first episode is complete. It is in the can. And there were so many things that happened. So so many things that happened in this episode. Just so so many. Absolutely. It was it was a wild ride. It's been so long since season seven. And the, the fandom in every sense has grown so much since then. The anticipation was so high. I was scrolling through the, the timeline after the episode ended. And, you know, I, I follow a bunch of non-Game of Thrones people on Twitter, but it was just everyone. Like, my friends are talking about it, my family, this random YouTuber, this political commentator. <laughs> Everyone's making Game of Thrones metaphors related to whatever their brand is on Twitter. Well, the real Game of Thrones is what the Spurs offense is going to do next. It's like everyone <laughs> is putting it in those terms. It's a, it's a wild thing to witness, and that's a question completely divorced from the quality of the episode, which sounds like a bad thing, but I mean kind of respectfully. Like, we, we all come together around this in a way that kind of transcends the badness or goodness of the individual episode and that was something to experience again every year i get excited for every single time that the episodes start to air and the season comes on on hbo and i think it's it's a lot of fun it's a great community experience i think like i i I can only and here's the thing like i only can only imagine what it's going to be like when we finally get the announcement for the winds winter you know next week or the week after one of those times how what that's going to do for our community and when we come up to like the books like coming out and Three days, two days, one day. What? What are we all? We're all we flipping up at at that point in time. So I, I, I think it's a lot of fun that way. Like I've said many times before, like I got hooked on this series called A Song of Ice and Fire through the show itself. I know you're you're an OG. I'm a true fan and superior to you. Yes. <laughs> Go on. So I, I have a special fondness for Game of Thrones as as a TV show, and I know. We have some of people who listen to us who are not fans of Game of Thrones TV show, and that's fine if you're not. I, I enjoy it. Uh, there are places where I feel that there's some criticism that's worthy of the show, but a lot of the show I, I like. Even later seasons. I, I like a lot, of, a lot of the later seasons. I love the earlier seasons. I really like the later seasons. I don't know if that's, just, that's an actual distinction or if it's just one in my mind. I'm not sure. I mean, if you did separate Game of Thrones seasons one through four from Game of Thrones seasons five through eight, I would list Game of Thrones seasons one through four among my favorite television shows of all time. Yeah. I am reluctant to say that about the show as a whole. I'm reluctant to compare it to something like the Deadwood, which I'm super excited about the, yeah. the movie version of that coming out. I think that's nearly a perfect show on hmm. its own. And I, I think every element works in a way that is somewhat above the level of Game of Thrones, but there's still nothing like Game of Thrones as appointment viewing. And even in the episodes that I think don't quite come together in terms of the writing, stuff like the White Hunt, as we've talked about before, there's still so much spectacle and so many character sure. moments that carry us through, obviously. We're not the first to say that, nor will we be the last, but that definitely came to mind watching watching Winterfell, the first episode of season eight. Yeah, it, it really, really did come to mind. I mean, I, I thought that season eight, episode one was really good, as I'll talk about here momentarily. But there were kind of some moments there where I'm also like, huh, I just don't know if that necessarily works so well. And one of the things I think is going to be a common theme as we're going through this season is just how fast it feels like it's progressing towards the end. Absolutely. I think like when we're looking at these things and I was talking with some friends about this is that like 
all of the Arya re-meeting of Gendry, re-meeting of, Sa- of Sandor, John, of Tyrion, even all these different characters. Like these, these, those are anchor points for an entire episode of Game of Thrones, but they were all individual scenes. And in one case, the, the case where Arya meets Gendry again, that scene is then combined with her meeting Sa- with her meeting Sandor Clegane again. So interesting. Um, I'm not sure that it, it works yet, but maybe we'll see some some further payoffs as we're going through this season. Agreed. Now, before we get to the episode itself. Jeff very kindly and magnanimously offered you the possibility to chime in with some questions about this episode. And as always, we thinking poorly of ourselves and being depressed young men. So we get like five or six questions maybe. But of course, y'all came through with dozens because we love you and and your interest will never die. So we just wanted to pick a couple to talk about here. We got a couple other ones that we will sprinkle through the episodes. We talk about various aspects of the, the episode that were relevant and we uh, made down the line do an episode on a bunch of questions about season eight since you guys have so much interest. But we wanted to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the yeah. questions, first of all. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for all the questions, the interest. And of course, as you guys know, if you follow us on Twitter, we did reach over 700 patrons today, which is fantastic. And we're really honored and humbled, really, by what you guys are, are doing for us and supporting us, not just in terms of financial, although we appreciate that obviously but in terms of like just your support your words of encouragement towards us and all of the things that you've done to make us feel like our nascent podcast i mean it's it's crazy that it's been like 16 months now that we've had this podcast going but it's felt like we're we have a home in in the community and that's really cool we really appreciate all you guys and your support for us couldn't agree more now the first of the questions we're going to deal with up front comes from darren sowards who asks now that we've seen the symbol a few times what is with that spiral symbol any thoughts would be greatly appreciated <laughs> So he's referring to the spiral symbol created around poor Ned Umber at Last Hearth at the end of oh uh, Season 8, Episode 1. And that is a symbol we've seen associated with the White Walkers before. We saw it at the Fist of the First Men when Mance had that great line about how the others are always the artists, which was like my favorite. I don't, I don't generally like what the show did with Mance, but that was my favorite little show Mance moment yeah. right there. That little bit, of, little bit of sardonic humor that felt like his character in the books. And of course, we see it again at the inception of the White Walkers when Bran flashes back in Season 6. So clearly this is a symbol of great import to the White Walkers and the show as a whole. There are a bunch of different interpretations. Obviously, people like our friend LML and his whole Mythhead crew take deep dives into it. I've seen a lot of people talk about it on Twitter on the day after. Uh, probably the most insightful take I saw came from our guest for our most recent episode on the main cast, Lauren, a.k.a. Shakespeare Thrones, who noted the similarity between the site specifically of uh, poor young Ned and his tentacle things on fire as being very similar to the Targaryen sigil. Hmm. The, the three-headed dragon and how they form kind of a circular spiral shape the way they're presented on, on the on the Targaryen banner. And I think what that gets at is this kind of unity of ice and fire and how that's kind of an, an underlying an, an, an underlying reality and an underlying secret that you can see in both books and show the hint that these two seemingly opposing forces are actually connected yeah. and that there's some part of the backstory that brings the history of dragons and Valyria and blood magic and the history of others and children and ice magic together. And I think that symbol is, is important, therefore, not just to the White Walker's creation, but it kind of stands in for the backstory as a whole. Like it stands in for mysteries. It stands in for there. There's there's more here to it than than you know. And the, it's interesting to see the White Walkers kind of taunt people with that image. It, it suggests <laughs> that there's there's more to their backstory, maybe to be revealed, or even if there's not, that they they consider this kind of like the ultimate slap in the face to humanity. This revelation that we we were once you, and we were made to kill you, and we're coming to kill you again. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I've always just, I've never given it a lot of thought myself personally. I, I've always found it just to be kind of a creepy sign that there's some sort of 
call it intelligence or some sort of design behind the White Walkers in the show. Now, the books are different because as we talked about in our very first episode in the Nauticast, uh, when Elio Garcia Jr. and Linda Anderson talk with George R. R. Martin about the others, uh, basically the what they got from George was like, they don't have any culture. There's like, they don't really have anything going for them. Yes, they have a language of some sorts, but there's no, there's nothing really there. So to me, it's, it's an interesting show invention and to give the White Walkers a common leader in the form of the Night King and give them a common symbol and that kind of spiral symbol thing really works to emphasize their intelligence, but also to me emphasizes that their intelligence is motivated and driven by their desire to wipe out all human life, possibly all life together in Westeros and beyond. I'd like your your idea, your and Lauren's idea a lot better, though, because it's much more well thought out than my idea. Like that's just symbolizing that they're they're smart, but they're smart because they want to kill people. That's the only reason that they they have that symbol going for them. I mean, I think it was someone compared it on, on Twitter today, one of our friends and I'm blanking. I think it. It might have been Grant. It might have been our patron, uh, or Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, compared it to the patterns in Westworld that were kind of hardwired into the the, oh, the robots yeah. on that show. The maze that they became obsessed with and was kind of just a symbol of intelligence itself. Yeah. So, so maybe maybe that spiral speaks to it. Maybe it speaks to the the metaphorical wheel that Danny wishes to break. Maybe it's a representation of that. I think it's supposed to suggest a, a lot of different things, but it's 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 interesting to see the show kind of move in that symbolic direction, which is something they they sometimes do, but not consistently. So it's it's I'll be interested to see how that plays out, if at all, uh, over the course of the rest of season eight. Yeah. So uh, thank you, Darren, for the question. Yeah, thanks, Darren, so much for the question. Our second question comes from Lady Randy, who asks, "This isn't an episode-specific question, but how do you guys feel about having the ending of A Song of Ice and Fire spoiled for you by the show?" I love watching Game of Thrones, but I'm mad I won't get to find out the end game from George R. R. Martin himself. I feel robbed. Even if I decide not to watch this season, there's just no way to log onto Twitter or walk into work without being spoiled, and that really pisses me off. I, I feel the emotion there. It's really good. The only minor com- the only minor comfort I have is that D&D have diverged so far from the books that there's really no way the TV finale will look or feel anything like the book finale. I know A Song of Ice and Fire is going to be much, so much richer and more rewarding, but I'm not sure how I'll feel reading The Winds of Winter knowing the fate of John or Danny or the realm. Can you help me feel any less sad about this? Well, Lady Randy, I can make you feel more sad about this in one key area, and that is that the ending to Game of Thrones Season 8, in my opinion, is going to likely resemble what we're going to find out at the end of A Dream of Spring. And the reason why I'm fairly confident of this is that back in 2013, I've referenced this several times before, but back in 2013, George R. R. Martin sat down with David Benioff and Dan Weiss in Santa Fe for a few days and revealed the end game for A Song of Ice and Fire and the end states for the various characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, specifically the major characters. Some of the minor characters he didn't quite have ideas for, and some of the other minor characters aren't even showing up in the books, aren't even showing up in the show itself. Think of characters like Ariane, Young Griff, John Connington. These characters are likely going to have interesting end games and end states. So if you're trying to feel a little bit better about The Winds of Winter, my feeling is that season six and season seven of the show are more likely to not resemble many of the plot beats from The Winds of Winter. But season eight, as we're getting up to it at the end of this journey that we've been on, I feel like it's most likely going to resemble an events from A Dream of Spring. So I was thinking about this a little bit on Twitter, and I was thinking about how George R. R. Martin might have revealed some of the end states from, from A Dream of Spring. And I felt very strongly that 
yeah, Danny and John will come together. They'll form a great army to confront the others in the books as well as the show. Likely Jamie will come to Winterfell as well. That feels like something that Martin would reveal to them. Different things as well, like that John will have his parents revealed to him by Samuel Tarly feels like it will probably possibly happen in the books, so to speak. Maybe there'll be other characters too. I mean, I know that Emma's already looking at me about to like shout up, shout at me about Howland Reed, but I'm, I'm, that would be my response. But carry on, <laughs> sir. I don't want to break your flow. But I, I ultimately, I feel like that what we're seeing in season eight is likely going to resemble a dream of spring. But I think, and this is something that I referenced before, but I think we're likely going to be seeing a lot of the broad strokes, not a, not as much of the depth that we'll be seeing in the books as we see in the show. And that's fine. They're only doing six episodes to cover the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. George R. R. Martin has estimated at one point in time that A Dream of Spring will be 1,500 manuscript pages, which will translate to about 1,050-ish pages that you read in a hardback version of a book and similar amount of books in, in soft cover and paperback and mass market, mass market paperback. So we'll be seeing the – I think a lot of the end states will resemble what we see between A Dream of Spring and Season 8 – but a lot of the depth will not be there. Your thoughts, Emin? So I like the Star Wars prequels, which is always a great way to start a conversation. <laughs> I know I've immediately lost 95% of you. But I remember in the lead up to the release of the second one, Attack of the Clones, they released the novelization first for some unknown reason <laughs> before the movie. So I, I read that because my curiosity was too strong. But it didn't spoil Attack of the Clones for me. And again, I'm sure plenty of people think it's possible to spoil Attack of the Clones because it's already terrible. <laughs> but even as someone who likes Attack of the Clones, it wasn't spoiled for me because it's such a different medium. And that just makes the emotions come across differently, even if the content is entirely the same. Reading about something and watching it unfold are, are just going to be different, even if the plot points are the same. Now, that, of course, doesn't mean you can just restore the virgin experience to reading The Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring. It's definitely going to be a different relationship. But I wouldn't characterize it as a ruined relationship. I think if and when we get versions of those events because like you say they're just going to be versions plenty of the depth and minor characters will be missing it's it's going to feel like its own story even as, as certain elements seem familiar and that's you know there's going to be kind of a fun process to that again if and when we get the book in our hands and right. pointing out oh this is like the show that's kind of like the show i wonder if they knew about this or this is a coincidence that in and of itself is a whole different experience that we're going to have now that's fairly unique yeah it is very unique in a in the, the culture as it stands right now to have the ending of a book series spoiled by a show. I know that it's fairly or it can be somewhat common in anime, but I don't watch anime necessarily. But I, from what I understand, some animes shows will get ahead of the anime books themselves and will spoil them. But for us as Americans, good old Americans, we it's it's somewhat unknown for us. So we're in interesting territory, I think. And I think that's something worth considering, too. And I think also, you know, we, we talked about this in our Stannis episode on the end game is Dance Baratheon in the books. It's likely going to be similar in that Stannis will die. He'll sacrifice Shireen, but all of the motivations and the reasons why it happens is going to be so very different from books to show. And I think we're going to look back at events from season five, for instance, and we'll be like, yeah, I, I see why you came to that conclusion, why you portrayed things that way yes it happens somewhat in the books but the path the plot pathway to get there is much more but the plot pathway to get there is very different and will likely be more satisfying so i think when we look at the ending for a, for game of thrones season eight and the ending between a dream of spring i think we'll likely be more satisfied with what we see at the end of a dream of spring if nothing else, we won't get the Jamie and Bronn road trip to Dorne. That, <laughs> will, that will never grace the pages of A Song of Ice and Fire, so that's something to be thankful for. And we are also thankful for your question, Lady Randy. And we have one final question we want to address before we get to the episode, and that comes from Lady Carrie Ann D, who asks, 
Harry Strickland has a penis face. Yes or no? Jeff, hard-hitting question. Take it away. Oof, man. I've I've given this a lot of thought. And I have to come yes up... Yes or no? Harry Strickland has a penis face. Answer the question, Senator. Well, you know, let me flip the question around. Does Jamie have mm-hmm. a penis face? Because tell me that the actor who's playing Harry Strickland does not resemble Jamie Lannister. He resembles Jimmy Lannister in the way that Prince Charming from the Shrek movies resembles Jamie Lannister. <laughs> like the most superficial possible version without the soul that even I, someone who's not exactly in love with Jamie, can tell is is in Jamie's depths. But yeah, I agree. That was interesting framing to have him as kind of a lesser Jamie, kind of like Lancel in that way, like yeah. a substitute Jamie for Cersei. That is interesting they're going for that. I wonder if we'll see jealousy between Euron and Harry Strickland over Cersei, and I can't think of anything I want to see less. <laughs> Well, what about the bronze subplot? Oh, God, we'll get to that. (laughs) So, Lady Carrianne, I think we're going with a, yes, his face resembles a penis because Cersei is supposed to be attracted to him. Yes. True That's my conclusion. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Thank you very much for your questions. We really appreciate them. We'll have another question forum next week for episode two. But without further ado, we do need to talk about what actually happened in Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 1, with the title of Winterfell. And is that getting annoying yet? Is it still in your head right now? I think if you do it for five more minutes, it'll get annoying. But so far, I'm on board. Okay, cool. Well, Game of Thrones is back, and it's more gamey, more thronesy than ever. The Unsullied march into Winterfell, sleeveless the way the Lord intended shirts to be worn, while Arya watches them. She sees her faves, Jon and Gendry, and her least faves, Tyrion and Sandor. And then the dragons fly in, sending the small folks scattering because, oh my god, there's fucking dragons in the air. Jon and Danny slow trot in, side by side, the man in black and the queen in white. The costuming, and I have to say this, is superb throughout this episode, so major ups to Michelle Clapton and her excellent costuming. John has a tearful reunion with Bran, another reunion with Sansa, a very touching reunion with Arya, though we'll talk about it. And Arya in turn reunites with Gendry, then Sandor. Sansa reunites with Sansa, and oh my god, there's so many freaking reunions in this episode, bro. In the Winterfell audience hall, the Northerners are slightly unhappy about John bending the knee to Daenerys. Like, John, didn't we just fucking crown your ass? Not a completely invalid point, Northerners. Sansa wonders how they're going to feed all these new soldiers, and John dispatches Lord Ned. Umber, off with more wagons to bring his people to Winterfell. Godspeed you, boy, but sorry, no soldiers to spare to head to go on with you off to the last earth. You'll be fine going up there alone, right? Right? Whew. In King's Landing, Cersei is happy that the White Walkers have broken through. The Iron Fleet is back with the Golden Company, and Euron wants to do the nasty with the Queen, and the nasty he does. Bronn is at half-mast, about to engage in a foursome, when Kyburn arrives, giving him a crossbow and telling him there's a wagon full of gold in store for him if he kills Tyrion or Jaime. Both. Meanwhile, Euron gets weird with Yara, who's tied up aboard the Silence, and I'm really so tense about the subplot. What's going to happen? How will this get resolved? Five minutes later, Theon boards the Silence and rescues Yara without a, without a hitch. They sail north, and Yara declares she'll go to the Iron Islands, but Theon wants to go fight by the Starks. At least that's a nice touch. Back at Winterfell, Jon casually becomes the second of three heads of the dragons, riding Rhaegal into the sky. Bran tells Sam that Sam needs to tell Jon about his parentage, but before that, Danny tells Sam, so your dad, he's, um, dead. Your brother, too. No hard feelings, right? Sam heads down to the crypts and finds John at Lord Eddard's crypt statue. He reveals John's parentage to him. John's ecstatic. He's Rhaegar's son. He's the king. This is amazing. Actually, no. He's fucking pissed that Ned would lie to him. But John, don't you see? This makes you king. And John, we need some interpersonal drama in this season. So if you were willing to give up a crown to save the realm, wouldn't Danny do the same for you and for Westeros? Question mark. 
Up at Last Hearth, Barak and Tormund enter Last Hearth and find it mostly deserted, save for some not at all ominous bloodstains but no bodies in the snow. They hear noises. They think it's the White Walkers. But it's Dullers Ed and the rest of the Night's Watch. Whew. Barak Dondarrion turns on his flashlight and they proceed to the and they proceed to the audience hall where they find little Lord Ned Umber nailed to the wall with arms shaped like a typhoon around him. You know the pattern. We talked about that just a few minutes ago. The boy's eyes glow blue and Barak uses his flashlight to white and uses his flashlight to burn white Ned. Back at Winterfell, the hooded man rides to the gates. At long last, this mystery from A Dance with Dragons is resolved. Is it Robert Glover, Howlin' Reed, Theon Durden, Harwin? <laughs> no, it's Jamie. Jamie has arrived all hooded up, and the first person he sees is Bran Stark watching him from his wheelchair. Cut to black, remains remains Jawadis, the Nightlands thundering through the credits. Oh, and Davos, Tyrion, and Vars are also in this episode. And that is Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 1, Winterfell. There were some uh, wonky, rushed moments in this episode, but I liked a lot of it. What would you think, Emmett? I agree. There, when, whenever Game of Thrones can effectively pare things down to a couple of characters with strong motivations interacting, it's really great because then the drama is functional so you can focus on how the cast shines, how the score is beautiful, the costumes, as you mentioned. But sometimes it feels a little forced and you can too easily feel the hand of the writer at work yeah. shoving pieces around on the board to make things happen and doesn't quite feel as organic as you want it to because there is this ecstasy that comes from all these characters finally being in the same place, right? We felt some of that in season seven because there is this ecstasy, right? And seeing all these characters come together in the same place. We felt it somewhat in season seven. It comes through really strongly in this episode. And that's something we're longing for in the books is to see yeah. all these characters come together, not just because they love each other and it would make them happy, but just the the narrative thrill at seeing all these strands come together. And that, I think, works best when it feels like the characters are the ones driving the action and a little less so when it feels like the writers are. And it went back and forth for me, pretty much scene to scene on that basis in this episode. Like a lot of episodes of Game of Thrones, this felt inconsistent to me in terms of really strong scenes and scenes that felt much more rushed or with a lot less attention given to them or they were just connecting point A to point B. Yeah, where I felt like the this the episode allowed itself to breathe and kind of showcase some scenes and allowed the characters to interact and not have to be cutting from scene to scene to scene very quickly and cutting from subplot to subplot to subplot. I thought it worked really, really well. Like my favorite scene from this episode was the Jonathan Bradley scene where Daenerys and Jorah Mormont talk with him and... You know, it's, it's the scene starts out nice with Samuel saying that he wants a pardon for stealing some books from the Citadel Library, and we're really kind of cool. It's it's really kind of cool, and then it transitions to oh, uh, I'm actually Randall Tarly's son, and oh, he's dead. Oh, and my brother Dickon is dead too, and oh my god, like you like the facial acting that Jonathan Bradley does is fantastic. I think one of our friends, and I can't remember exactly who it is, so I apologize for that in advance, but one of our friends talked about how half of Samuel's face was kind of still trying to like please and be gracious to Daenerys Targaryen, but the other half of his face was just devastated by the loss of his, his father and brother. And it's a really complex relationship, too, especially between Sam and Randall Tarly, as we talked about back in John 4 from a, from a Game of Thrones. And it was good showing us that, yeah, even though Randall was complete monster to Samuel Tarly, that doesn't mean there's no emotions with having this person be taken from you. I mean, you, Randall raised Samuel in some way. He's his father, regardless of how terrible of a father he was to him. So I really, really thought that that was a an excellent moment from this episode itself. I agree. I think you said it well about the war of emotions on Sam's faces. It's not just that he's devastated. It's that he's 
angry and scared and still wants to please the person in front of him because now he's worried he's going to be next. Right. And he's just processing seeing Jorah again and the positive emotions he was feeling about that. That's what makes the scene work is that it starts with everyone as friends and everyone getting along and trying to work together positively. A model of what we want to see in the face of the White Walkers, right? These three people from kind of different backgrounds and different interests coming together, the third person being Jorah, and that's the connection between Sam and Danny's that he helped Jorah out, when, as he said, everyone else could, they just wouldn't do it. Right. But then it breaks down because of, of the realities of war and what's already happened. And Amelia Clark plays it beautifully in her face, too, when she realizes who Sam is. Her, her delay yeah. just goes to, to disappointment. And sadness so quickly she realizes what what she has to tell him and how it sounds when she's saying it out loud to a person who's in that family. And that yeah, that, that's terrific stuff. And speaking of faces, character obviously strongly associated faces is Arya Stark because she tends to wear them quite a bit. Yeah. And uh, I actually liked her characterization in this episode. I liked that it was free of her murder robot expression that she wore for most of season four. She actually, she actually <laughs> got to have a, a range of emotions, which was nice. And we got to spend some time with her seeing a bunch of different people and starting off the episode with her lurking around as Sansa says, which of course mirrors her running around in the in the pilot. And this as many people have pointed out, this episode mirrors the pilot in a lot of ways. Like yeah. they're showing off what they can do now with bigger budget in a similar scenario. And it makes me think, yeah, maybe she won't kill Cersei after all. Maybe she's she's snapping out of murder <laughs> robot mode, but characterization sometimes changes from episode to episode here, so I shouldn't get my hopes up. Yeah, the artist stuff is interesting and we will have a little bit more to say about that towards the end of this episode. In terms of lowlights, though, so what did you think was not necessarily clicking for you for this episode? All right, this is an easy target and everyone pointed out immediately, but the bronze subplot, we're just going to have to pretend it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's so transparently stupid. It's everything that people don't like about Game of Thrones in one package. It's like the pointless exposition, the lame dialogue, the the contrivances, the, the obviousness of things being made up just to get a character on the road. Like, that's that's one of the major weaknesses of Game of Thrones writing is right. not just that plots are invented to just give characters things to do or to get them on the road to where they need to go. It's how blatant it is. Yeah. You're allowed to manipulate your characters. They are ultimately pieces on a game board, but you're not supposed to expose that you think of them as pieces on a game board. It's supposed to feel a little more organic than that, and sometimes in this episode that works really well. But sometimes it doesn't, and the bronze subplot feels like this is just the lamest way... You could get Braun out of King's Landing and get him into Tyrion and Jamie's plot. And I get that you can't film, film Drum Flynn and Lena Headey at the same time because they want to murder each other. But there's, there's <laughs> got to be a better way to handle that than this. Yeah, I, I agree. I, you'd said this earlier in this episode, but you talked about how you could sometimes see the writers in action here. And I really see the writers being the ones who are pushing it. And yes, writers do thumb the scale in order to make certain actions happen and make certain characters react in a certain way. But you're not supposed to see the goddamn thumb pressing the, the scale. It's supposed to be invisible there. Like, it's supposed to look organic. And it just feels like a way to get Bronn up to Winterfell, where, of course, he's not going to kill Tyrion or Jaime in this You season. don't say, Jeff. I know, right? It's crazy. But it's 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 so ridiculous. I, I mean, I even know how... I have a pretty good idea, and no spoilers, because I'm avoiding all leak spoilers, but my idea of how they're going to resolve this is that Bronn's going to have that crossbow out. It'll be super, quote-unquote, dramatic. He'll aim it at Jaime or Tyrion or someone like that, but instead he'll shoot the crossbow bolt and it'll kill a white... Or kill someone who is trying to kill Jamie or Tyrion. Yeah, it'll be the Jorah thing from season five when he threw the spear, and for a second you think it's at Danny for some reason, but it's actually killing a, yep. one of the sons of the harpy behind her. I could definitely see that. That seems I can see the staging of that in my mind's eye. I won't yeah. be surprised at all. But yeah, like like you said, it's 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 all manipulation. It's all moving characters around. But you know the 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 meat of of craft the the meat of the craft is is 
letting your audience forget that and right. get swept away in what's happening. And it, it doesn't quite work for me there. What about you, sir? What do you think was the, the low light of Winterfell Season 8, Episode 1 of Game of Thrones well, HBO? So the whole Yara subplot of Theon rescuing Yara, like, wow, that was I was so freaking tense there for like, not at all because it was over in five minutes. You have, and, and here's the thing too. Like when I saw this scene, what I thought they were setting up was a, and this would have been interesting. So Euron banks Cersei, and then he walks out of the room. And then the next scene is Theon boarding the ship, boarding the silence to come rescue Yara. And I was hoping that as Theon was leading Yara away, he'd come face to face with Euron again. And it would be a good moment for Theon to like actually develop, show some character growth. Sure, like the contrast with season seven. Right, where he jumps over the side of the ship in season seven, which is actually a very valid and thing to say. And people who think differently who are like, oh, Theon is being a coward here. Don't actually realize that Euron at that point had a knife to Yara's throat and was going to kill her if he didn't kind of jump ship, which he actually did jump ship literally in that point. But I was hoping we would have something like that instead Theon gets there, kills all of Euron's guards, and then rescues Yara, and then they're off sailing off to... Are, are they sailing aboard the Silence? Did they t- they steal the Silence from, from Euron? As with Dorne, when they kill Tristan Martell somewhere, it's kind of unclear what the logistics are, if they're still tied up in King's Landing, how they got on board. The, certain stuff does get hand-waved. And you're right, it's just over so quickly that it makes it absurd that this was ever supposed to be a threat in the first place. Right. Like, oh, the thing we expected to happen happened immediately, with right. no obstacles. I mean, Euron was never going to look intimidating on the show, but this really just makes him look pathetic. That he can't hold on to Yara as a prisoner in enemy territory when Theon strolls in with what looks like four guys. Right. <laughs> and the silence looks like this massive ship surrounded by all these other massive ships right. in which Euron just brought a mercenary army. But they can't keep hold of the one prisoner he has. Right. He very much wants to keep, as he said. Yeah. So in every respect, it reminds me of Yara's aborted rescue attempt with Theon mm-hmm. in season uh, four, four yeah. I think that was, yeah. But actually, I think this this wasn't as poorly staged as that one was, but in plot terms, I think this is even less satisfying. It was, but I, I do think there was a bit of a grace note of the whole subplot in that you had Theon and Yara talking aboard the ship afterwards. That was nice. And uh, it's kind of like silly to me that Yara's just going to disappear from season eight, I guess, for the rest of the season, unless they happen to kind of retreat back to the Iron Islands, which maybe, uh, maybe, no. That was weird to hear her say that. I kind of hope they don't do that. I remember there were like theories that they were going to retreat to the Vale and take refuge at the Eyrie, which has its own kind of stupid to it. But at least that's cinematic and dramatic. Like the Vale, it's, you know, cut off from everything. It's this big mountain. The Iron Islands are just a bunch of rocks. Right. Like this is this, that's why it's it's a parallel between Euron and Littlefinger, and that they both just come from a bunch of rocks and hate that, right? And just want something much huger and better. So there's there's not much dramatic there. So I, I feel like you that this is Yara being quietly written out of season eight, with maybe like she shows up at the end. Yeah, maybe she does. But I did like the fact that Theon's going back to Winterfell, and I do like that because it ties in beautifully with that scene from A Dance of Dragons where Theon is sobbing in front of the Winterfell heart, heart tree talking about how he should have died with Rob. Well, he can't die with Rob anymore because Rob has already died and Theon is still living, but now he can go die up at Winterfell next to Jon Snow and to the other Starks as well as a both a Stark and a Greyjoy, which is one of the better season, scenes from season seven. Agreed for sure. So moving on to our next section, we wanted to talk about the two major reveals in the episode, which are, of course, John becoming a dragon rider and John learning his parentage down in the crypts. And these are, of course, linked scenes in many respects. 
Yeah, they are really, really linked scenes. And we figure we start with one of our comments we got from Patreon from with Sir, my Reverend Clint McBroom, who says, quick first reactions like the first almost first person view of dragon writing. That was cool. I think the scene would have worked better after John was told of his parentage as his confirmation of it. All of Sansa's saltiness just seems like a bad soap opera. I know the show needs conflict to make drama, but this feels poorly done. So I, I agree with all three of those points to greater or lesser extents. I think that Sansa is not necessarily wrong to feel a bit estranged from Daenerys Targaryen, given all of the shit that she went through in order to ensure that Jon became king in the north. And now he's given up his crown for Daenerys. But let's focus instead on the dragon riding portion and the Jon's reveal of his parentage from Sam. So of the two scenes, I much prefer the crypt scene between Sam and Jon. I feel that that scene was... Very well done. I love the blocking of it. I love the fact that you had Ned's statue looming over the conversation throughout. That was extraordinarily beautifully done. Well done cinematographically. The cinematography was awesome. I love every scene in the crypts. Almost every scene in the crypts. Uh, besides that one scene with Littlefinger in season five. But I will pretend that didn't exist. Um, but ultimately, I think that scene was strong. And I think we got the version that I think is most likely going to happen in the books of when John finds out about his parentage, how that's not going to be a joyous event. But instead, he's pretty pissed and kind of sad about it. And it makes complete character sense that they had portrayed John reacting that way. I, I know that there's the, the smarter folks in the fandom, uh, me included, have always said that that John's reaction to learning about his true parentage will not be one of happiness, but will actually be one of sadness and anger. And I was happy to see that portrayed on the small screen last night. Agreed, because this so shadows his relationship with Ned, and I love that that's what he went to first. This means Ned lied to me my whole life. Right. And how, how can I take that when the one thing I was sticking with was that he's an honorable man whose model I'm trying to follow here as best as I can. And who am I as king if that's that's not the model I'm following? Who am I as, as, as a man... And Sam is trying to urge him to, you know, think of this positively and think of this as a new model. But for a number of reasons, including, of course, his relationship with Danny, John can't quite get there. And yeah, I thought that was that was beautifully played. I love that Sam stumbled into the crypt, that he literally fell in. That's just that's a great character moment because that's exactly what Sam Tarly would do. Right. He wouldn't walk in all gracefully. He would literally trip and fall on his way to this like <laughs> this this hollowed inner sanctum and Sam just kind of collapses in. That's perfect. But yeah, as, as, as Sir Reverend Clint McBroom says, it's it, the, the dragon riding scene has this kind of taint for me because I, I feel like it was a little out of order. That, that would yeah. have worked really beautifully coming after the crypt scene. Like John is struggling with how to tell this to Danny, how to process it. And he rides a dragon, the symbol of Hars Targaryen, the, tur- the dragon named for his father, right. Rhaegar Targaryen. And that's how he kind of, if not comes to terms with it, then at least finds part of it he can embrace and live with. It's unfair to hold a scene in a show to the standard of a scene that doesn't exist anywhere except our minds. <laughs> you know, that's that's obviously ridiculous. And as we've said before, we have to be try to be reasonable with our complaints about the show. But on the other hand, I saw someone saying online, like, oh, I don't understand complaints about it. They're in love and they're flying dragons. And I'm like, well, you could say Batman v Superman is an awesome movie because it's Batman fighting Superman. But most people still didn't <laughs> love that movie. Execution is what counts. And I, I think... Playing, playing it slightly comedically before John finds out about the truth and having Danny so casually invite him to ride a dragon while it's final isolation. I feel like this could have been a much more dramatic, grand, singular event, like the part of the episode everyone was talking about, if it had been executed a little differently. Yeah, and, and I think we also, I, th- I think what you're, you're getting to is that there's a bit of dissonance between the two scenes and how the emotional reactions that they're 
bringing out from the audience in that we are a little bit kind of sad for John in the crypt scene. But at the same time, <laughs> it's very casual the way that John becomes the second head of the dragon. Like there was something that kind of like left me a little bit kind of head scratching was just the way that it was like, oh, why don't you just mount the dragon and fly with me? And you're like, wait a minute, like. This is supposed to be like a, a pretty huge moment here that you have the second dragon rare in the whole fucking world that you're just kind of casually because it's it's Monday, right? It's Monday or it's Tuesday or whatever day it is in Winterfell. It's Dragon Day. It's Dragon Day. Every, anyone can try to ride a dragon. It's right there in the calendar. Yeah, Danny should be more like freaked out about this right. or interested that this random Stark bastard has the ability to so easily fly a dragon with barely any problems. Look at the season six scene with Tyrion where he descended into the dragon pit. And had had this this eerie face to face, and obviously nothing really came of that directly. If if anything was more symbolic, I guess, showing his connection to to Danny and her crusade. But that felt more like a grand, dramatic, about to be a dragon rider scene, right? Than this did. This felt compared to that a little a little overly casual. Yeah, and the other thing too is like when you go back to season five or at the end of A Dance of Dragons, when Daenerys actually mounts Drogon for the first time, it is one of the most compelling scenes in the books and the show. I don't want to get too much into it, but at the same time, like it's, it's very much, it's a very huge deal, regardless of whether you're reading it in the dance of dragons or watching it in season five, that Daenerys has finally mounted a dragon. Like this is huge. This is a massive, massive deal for Daenerys, her character. She's embracing her dragon side as opposed to Marine and all those things. And which I don't want to get into here because we're not talking about Marine because that's all like three seasons ago. But at the same time, John just kind of casually jumping on the back of Rhaegal and riding around with Daenerys. Like it's, fun, happy time just struck me as a interesting, bad, not great note. I mean, I loved like a lot of like the first person view, kind of the over the shoulder view of the dragon riding. It felt very Superman-ish, which was interesting. Yeah, that was cool. And the music was really cool too. I, I like that they, that Ramin Jawadi used the kind of triumphant Daenerys riding the dragon music, which is one of my favorite kind of lesser appreciated notes that the Ramin uses for, for Game of Thrones. But I do think that there's a distance there between the emotional setup between that scene and what we see in the crypts itself. And I think, and I had talked about this a little bit on Twitter last time before I went to bed because I was very, very tired, but I was talking about how in a sort of rewrite way sort of thing. Yes, you should have had the crypt scene come before, but instead of having John talk about how being upset, but seeming to accept that he's actually Rhaegar's son, have him actually come and be in denial about it. Like, I'm not Rhaegar's son. I refuse to believe any of that because that's, I was Ned Stark's son. I've, there's no way that could possibly yeah, happen. Yeah, that's good. And then instead, like, have him then have the confirmation coming from, from dragon writing and kind of set it up too, make it a little bit dramatic, so to speak, where you have... Something like Daenerys talking about, oh, well, you know, I've read a book here and there that have talked about how all there were all these dragon riders at the Dance of the Dragons. And, you know, two thirds of them died because of the dragons rejected them or ate them or burned them alive. But, you know, maybe that's just kind of what the maesters are saying. Maybe that's maybe maybe that's not true. And then kind of John, like trepidatiously kind of climbing aboard the dragon and he gets on and like it's like kind of tense for a moment whether the dragon is going to eat him or burn him alive or kick him off or something like that but instead the dragon takes off and like you would have that a little, yeah go ahead yeah a little more weight to the dragons I mean they are supposed to be you can have their adorable moments but yeah more fear more tension more kind of information from Danny I like a lot of the direction going with this just to give to give him more of a sense that John has changed afterwards in ways other than horses are now ruined for him, right. as he says, right. which is a cute line. But I need I need more impact than that from the first time you ride a dragon, brother. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So I, I think we're coming down to the crypt scene was really good. The dragon riding scene was not so good. 
and perhaps it wasn't so good because it was kind of anachronistic. It should have been switched chronologically in the episode itself or maybe spread out over two episodes. I mean, that's not the worst thing in the world to kind of have this lingering idea of John's parentage kind of being spread between episode one and episode two. I do imagine that in episode two itself, we are likely going to have John and Daenerys chit-chatting, so to speak, about John's parentage and whether he's the king or not right before we get to the battle itself because... What would Game of Thrones love more? The interpersonal drama that is suddenly interrupted by the fact that the White Walkers have come and they've come to destroy all of humanity and wipe out Winterfell itself. Perfectly said. I think that's going to be the structure for sure. And then Cersei's Golden Company shows up to screw with things even more. I would bet that's what we're going to see unfold over the next couple episodes. So we wanted to close out this episode by talking about what surprised us because, of course, we made a whole bunch of predictions on our Patreon. You can find <laughs> over at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOIAF. And uh, some are looking to be proven right, some maybe looking to be proven wrong as we proceed through the season from this first episode. But we want to talk about what surprised us and what didn't, what didn't quite work yeah. like we thought it was going to. Uh, in terms of Yara's rescue, we already mentioned the speed. That was kind of uh, unfortunate in terms of how easily and quickly it was resolved. But something that I did like that I didn't expect was the utter lack of rape <laughs> in that scene. I was honestly expecting Yara to go through something awful like yeah. Craster's Cape given how this show tends to handle these kind of situations. And obviously, you know, you can use rape effectively in drama, and there are people who have argued that the sexual violence in Game of Thrones is handled well and works for them as people who've experienced violence, and all these viewpoints are valid and fair. I don't want to just write off how Game of Thrones uses sexual violence as inherently bad, but I don't like it for the most part. I think it tends to destroy the drama of scenes and just leave you with an icky taste in your mouth and i think it would have done that here so i was glad and surprised that that did not happen i was too although why couldn't have yara been tied to the mast of the silence just like aaron Dampere was in the forsaken why couldn't yara's tongue have been cut out i mean as tawful as that sounds i mean god i sound like the worst fucking person in the world but Give me these crumbs of canon, D&D, and this this starving orphan begging for bread. Well, not just that. I mean, like, you want to add, like, dramatic tension into this subplot. And I get that they're like, oh, we we don't have time for this. Like, get get it off page as quickly as possible. Theon comes and rescues them, and they they, they roll away from there. Theon goes to Winterfell. Yara just fucks off back to the Iron Islands. But... I'd like to see a little bit of gravity added to that subplot. I want the subplots for Game of Thrones to have a bit of gravity to them, to have something that really means something, that there's cost associated with Yara joining up with Daenerys Targaryen. That that cost is like her tongue and being tied to the Master of the Silence in the same way that Aaron Damper has. And what better way to add gravity to Game of Thrones than to integrate some of fan fiction writer George R. R. Martin's work from The Winds of Winter into this season. I don't know. I, I know that's a, that's a nitpick, but I want answers, David and Dan. I want them. I think for me, it works a little better in the page because you have this element of a religious arc that gives the torture some meaning. Like that Aaron is going through a long night of the soul and is asking for his god to save him from Euron. And Euron tells him, there are no gods. I'm your god. All gods are lies and I'm going to replace them all. And that element just wouldn't be present because to show Euron's just a mook. <laughs> and I think having them cut out Yara's tongue and, you know, lash her to the mast wouldn't keep him from being a mook. So while I agree it, they should try to add more gravitas to this storyline instead of just writing it off like they did with Dorne, I think their attempts to do so might have ended up making it worse. Yeah, that's true. And that's kind of a point that one of our Sworn Sword patrons, Lady Beward, brings up where she's talking about this very subplot where she says, a bit bland, I feel. I'm not sure I really have questions apart from what's the point of Yara's story now? The Queen may need an island refuge where the White Walkers can't go? Question mark. Doesn't she have one of those already? Question mark. I don't know. Maybe Dragonstone? Question mark. Very valid points. I 
like we said, we don't feel that the Yara storyline is really going anywhere. We feel like we're at the end point now. And again, we have not read spoilers or leaks or anything like that. So maybe there's something out there that we don't know yet. Maybe we will find out that Yara's storyline will be very important and Daenerys will flee there after the Battle of Winterfell. I mean, I think we can, and, and we did talk about this in our, 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 and we did talk about this in our season eight predictions episode, but we don't think that the good guys are going to come out on top at the Battle of Winterfell. There are three episodes after that battle itself, so they could go anywhere. I, I guess they can go to the Iron Islands, but I, I kind of doubt it. it. It is possible. I was thinking about what Euron says when he sees the white for the first time. When everyone comes together in King's Landing and he says that, you know, can they swim? And when he hears that they can't, he says, good. And then he takes off. Obviously, that was a feint on his part, sir. So he was actually sending him off to get the Golden Company. Part of me wonders whether that line is set up for the Whites actually being able to walk underwater and emerging from the sea. Sure. I would love that as someone who loves the kind of Lovecrafting and horror elements surrounding Euron's character in the books. And there's that line that Cotter Pike sends in his letter from Hardhome in the books, uh, dead things in the water yeah. about possible whites or others in the water attacking his ships. So that would be really cool to see a version of that. Um, I don't know if the show is heading in that kind of Pirates the Caribbean direction. <laughs> if they are, they've definitely kept a lid on it. I don't, I don't keep up with the, the shooting gossip as much as some people, so I don't know if we've seen scenes filmed on the Iron Islands. Like I say, they're not the most cinematic location. <laughs> so I, I, I come down to divide on that. Maybe Yara's being kept in the pocket for a serious plot purpose. But especially given how abrupt and swift that scene itself is in episode one, it makes me think Yara's just being put on ice to show up again at the finale, if at all. Yeah, I agree with that. So one of the things that surprised me, though, was how underwhelmed I was personally about the Arya and John reunion. Heresy. I know, right? Because they did kind of paper over the fact that John knows about Arya already from Sansa. Like, I thought that they were going to have that information retained from John at the end of season seven because he doesn't know that Arya is back by then when he's interacting with Daenerys but I was kind of hoping for the kind of happy gleeful John and Sansa reunion from season six one of my favorite scenes from season six itself like it made my tears kind of sweat you know you know as I say beautifully put sir and that was touching and for for John and Sansa back in season six and while I don't think that this reunion was bad necessarily there was a moment where I felt emotions I didn't experience the same sort of tension evaporating, happiness materializing in its place feel that I got back in season six. And maybe it was because John and Arya spent more than half that scene comparing their swords. Did that have sort <laughs> of a, a part to play in this? In, in That's my fair. Yeah. I don't know. What you think? I- it definitely didn't come off as dramatic as the John Sansa scene. I think that's in part because both John and Sansa were in much more perilous situations at that point early in season six. Sansa was fleeing her rapist. John had just returned from the dead and killed his killers and left the Night's Watch. And that added this emotional layer that they were both at this kind of broken point And we're going to have to rebuild their identity with each other. And they never would have expected to do that, given that they didn't really get along as kids. Whereas with John and Arya, it's an affirmation of what was already a strong relationship. Yeah. And that's beautiful, and that's touching in its own regard, but it's not an arc. You know what I mean? It doesn't reflect a change in who they are true. as people. That's true. That's that's really, really true. I mean, I'm interested to see how things will progress as we get on with the season between John and Arya. It does feel like that John and Sansa are being set into conflict there, and I know that some people are saying that conflict is sexual tension. I'm not quite there yet, but, you know, we'll we'll see, I guess. 
but the the John and the the John and Arya material, I think, will get better as it progresses through. I think as they start to reacquaint themselves, and I and I do really think it was an interesting note where John was, had asked Arya about needles, like, "Have you used this before?" And she's like, "Once or twice." And you just realize that they haven't seen each other in yeah. 65 episodes right since like s- season one episode three so john has no idea about Arya's entire arc since the first very first season of this show that was my favorite part of the scene you get the, the weight of all this time and all this misery since they've been apart and that's a, a great way to use reunions to reflect on how long your show is and just on the backstory and all the adventures your characters have been on and a way to use reunions as a way to get at the emotional weight instead of just as we were saying earlier kind of bumping uh, character pieces together on the board so i did really enjoy that part and th- that was a nice kind of soft emotional touch it wasn't like the the string surging on the soundtrack john and sansa <laughs> reunion because yeah like you say that's one of the most memorable scenes in season six and this is not but i think it's appropriate to a different relationship sure absolutely so i think that about wraps us up for this mini episode analyzing game of thrones season eight episode one Winterfell. We hope that you guys we hope that you guys have enjoyed listening to this. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacast ASOIAF, where you can get early releases of our weekly episodes, exclusive episodes on various topics ranging from uh, Volantis to Stannis to our predictions for season eight of Game of Thrones. <laughs> May they long rest in peace. So check that out if you haven't already. As we were saying earlier, we're, we're super grateful to all the patrons who have signed yeah. up so far. And we're, we're always looking for more family members. So check it out. Absolutely. As always, please follow us on social media at notacastasof and our email notacastasof at gmail.com. Personally speaking, you could find me as at Brenda Beefish on Twitter and, and Brenda Beefish on Reddit. And my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. And you can hit me up at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And join us next week for not only our episode on Season 8, Episode 2 of A Game of Thrones, but our regular chapter-by-chapter analysis of A Game of Thrones, where we're up to Catalan 9, in which we meet Walder Frey and his whole horrible brood on the twins. That's going to be great. Remember them? Remember the phrase? I know. Remember Catalan? Remember the 90s? (laughs) And we will see you guys next week.